0: Put the uh, little Bible for Dummies thing in my pocket in case I get in trouble. Okay. Computer and CD are all up and operating. Record the clock. Wow, I am really, really early. What's that? early quit today, that's for sure. Okay, rappel mic. Whoops, I don't have it on me. I got it on, but I don't have it where it belongs. Now we're calling that good. Okay, let me try to fix it really fast. Since I've got time, it's kind of important. You think this is easy, but I'm... I'm a trained professional. Okay, now reach down. Get my medicine. Here we go. January 10, 2010. Lecture discussion number 8. So here we are at number 8 on Zechariah 11, Matthew 12, Matthew 27, Revelation 12, 13, 17, 18, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 9, and Exodus chapters 4 through 14. And that is quite the list. How are we doing now? I'm at 17, Pat. Okay, we'll figure it out as we on the fly here. That is quite the list, all of those uh, chapters. And nonetheless, it is the case. Those are the passages we're dealing with uh, today and for the next few weeks. And I realize that this is going to be like Uh, spinning uh, uh, plates on those long sticks, you know, the Chinese acrobatics, and that's appropriate because last week was Chinese arithmetic, and so I know it's a lot to kind of keep in your head, and a lot to keep on the, keep spinning and up in the air, but do the best you can. Okay, once again, we're going to attempt to negotiate through Revelation 17, so when I'm turning, am I still coming over the PA? Okay, Good. So here I'm at the board. We're at Revelation 17 today, but we're also at Daniel 2, Daniel 7, okay, and Revelation 13, because you cannot. You cannot understand Revelation 17 unless you have those others completely entangled in your uh, 17 studies. So we're going to throw in two, seven, maybe a little, of nine of Daniel and certainly some of Revelation 13. Okay, so much to cover. In addition, I left the better parts of three pages on the uh, on the holy music stand last week, last Sunday. So I'm going to try to pick them up as well. That means I'm going to... Put the cliffside bus in reverse a little bit, and, uh, or if you wish, uh, the cliffside dump truck. Because that's kind of what we're doing today, is just dumping a lot of stuff on you. But i got to go back and pick up a little of that stuff that was left last week in order for it all to fit together. All of that, of course, is necessary to uh, briefly uh, revisit one of my ultimate goals for you. Because I do have goals for you. One goal, as I said, was to make sure that you never think your Bible is something you can do in a pamphlet. That's goal that you have to have. Goal number two is to make sure that you understand that Christ is God, always God, never not God. If you ever have any position that suggests that Christ does not have his full deity at all times, then you're in serious error and in great danger. So I want to protect you with that at all times. But the other one is is the transmission to you of all the necessary ingredients that you have to have, in my view, that that are required, uh, that you need to know so that you can believe that we, you, us, possess an immortal soul spirit so that you know when Bill has a woman on the phone that's going to die in two months, he knows that is an immortal soul spirit and he can tell her what he knows. He can transmit that not only uh, through himself but to himself at the same time as well as to his kids. If your kids get to age 20 and they don't know that they have an immortal soul, that they are a a spiritual, supernatural, impossible to evolve um, Component as well as a physical body component that also is what? Impossible to evolve. If they don't know that, you've put them in danger. And if they can't prove it to themselves or to you or to their friends or to whomever they, they come in contact with, if they don't have that proof to you, to themselves, then again, they're in danger. I had a guy come last night. Ten o'clock at night, wasn't it dear? Ten o'clock at night, knocks on the door. In a lot of trouble. What do we talk about? Immortality. What happens to you when you die? How are you comprised? How are you made? How are you designed? Who designed you? What's the materials? How can you prove it? See... I said this a few weeks ago, and, I, and it's kind of funny because I made a comment about it in a meeting I go to, and you know, most of you know about that meeting that I go to, and I made a similar. They asked me, what are you doing? I said, I am going to prove to the congregation, I'm going to prove to everyone that comes that they have a, uh, the existence of their immortal soul that, so that they can prove it as well. And they all looked at me like, well, that's not something you can prove. Well, it is something I can prove. I do it all the time been doing in a long time you can prove it and it's important that I transmit that to you and so that's part of what I'm doing the, the proof of eternal existence notice I did not say eternal life that's because God is the definer of the word life life is what he says it is and he says life life by definition requires something what does it require it requires him and it requires reconciliation to him what we have he would not call he'd call this animation we're animated but we're not alive the unsaved are not alive let me clarify that the saved are alive God is the definer of life life is what he says it is whereas existence is a destination or a destiny we all have a destiny in other words some have eternal life life some most do not That everyone has immortality. Everyone has a destiny. Okay? Anyway, as you know, I think it's critical, I think it's essential for every Christian to know, to be able to prove to himself or to herself, to others, especially your children, the foundational, fundamental truth of the existence of our immortal soul spirit, or the supernatural, or the metaphysical, or the immaterial. Whatever you wish to call it. And that, of course, is Genesis 15.8. That's why I spend so much time in Genesis 15, because that is where Abraham says, how can I know that I have an immortal, eternal life? How can I know that? How do I know that? Let me move that away and see if that isn't what's feeding back a little bit. Let me drop this down. Is it bugging people? I'm looking at your faces. Okay. Okay. Knowing the answer to the eternal life question requires understanding the great take me of Genesis 15:9 through 10 and you all know what that is that's the heifer the goat the ram the two birds understanding that's very very important because you see only in scripture only in the bible let me say this this is why bible for dummies is completely nuts only in the bible only in scripture are the explanations for things like goodness what we would call altruism why does goodness exist where does it come from because you know evolution for example just as a philosophy remember when i say philosophy that's exactly what i mean it's a philosophy it's not just a scientific issue it's a philosophical issue and we'll get to that in a minute but there is no explanation in a in a philosophy that says to the most powerful to the to the most destructive uh, the higher And the more, and the most, because how do you explain altruism? How do you explain self-sacrifice? Why do uh, mothers run into? Is it to? They'll say it's selfish. The reason mothers will protect their children, fathers will protect their wives uh, and their children. Uh, We had we had a man uh, that went out on the tracks and was killed because he was trying to save his daughter. We had two men that died recently that jumped into a frozen river to save their dog. All three, the dog included, died. What causes that kind of behavior? You can't explain that evolutionary, uh, with an evolutionary philosophy or framework. There is no room for goodness in that system. So where does it, we know goodness is here? Where does goodness come from? The Bible is the only place that explains goodness, altruism, morality. It also is the only place that explains sin and evil and misery and injustice and death. Why it's there, why it's here, we all know it's here. Why? It's the only place that has an explanation for the creation of life, the restoration of this creation, and the purpose for creation. The greatest debate in science is, does the universe have, have purpose? One side says yes, that's the overwhelming side. The other side says no, the universe is meaningless. Which means if you are an evolutionary scientist and you think the universe is meaningless, then you have declared everything you do is meaningless. Because you're studying something that's in chaos. Why would you do that? So it's self-defeating. So they don't like to do that. They'll say it has purpose so that you will pay them to decide what the purpose is. Anyway, the Bible is unique. It is alone. And that is something we should expect. Check me out if you don't believe that's the case. But it is the sole framework that explains all of that. There is no other one that does it. Not the Far East. Not any of the other exotic religions. The Bible is unique. It is alone. And we should, as I said, expect that. And obviously, because why? Because the Bible, in our view, not in just our view, in the view of the Bible, probably isn't in my dummies thing here. Look, the Bible is very specific, and it says it is the inspired, complete, literally correct word of God himself. All right. So obviously... Therefore, any discussion, uh, any proof of our design, any proof of our soul-spirit existence and what its destiny is and how I can prove it exists, and any proof of how our soul-spirit interacts and transmits to our physical body and animates our physical body must begin and end with Scripture. That's, That's the case. But saying that, noting that the Bible is peerless, it's also the case that within His creation, God has placed... Evidences of the supernatural reality. So I can find evidence of the supernatural reality. I can prove that you are a supernatural and a physical being incorporated into one that separates at death. I can prove that with evidences in creation. I can do it with logic, reason. And it's been done. That's why when people tell me you can't prove it, I just go, wow. I guess I should ignore everybody that has proven it, there's a lot of them. I didn't do this first. don't think I did. But that's why I include physics and philosophy and logic and reason in the mix. I believe that it's important for Christians to give biblically-based, sound reasons for our beliefs. You've got to be able to do it. You're going to have that phone call from that dying person someday. By the way, when do you get those phone calls from those dying people? Because you don't think those are arbitrary, do you? when do you get them? You know the one I get all the time. It's really the saddest one. Not all the time, but often enough that it, it, when it happens, it's just really difficult. It's the one where the mother calls and says, "Why didn't God hear my prayers?" Because my son died. They're from soldiers, soldiers who die. I've had it now happen to me on the count four times. Soldiers who die, the mothers call. Because they went to their pastor, most of them, all of them, went to their pastors and said, "Everybody else would prayed every Sunday for our sons and daughters in uh, in the war. My son was killed. How come their prayers were heard and mine wasn't?" And what did the pastor say? What would you say, by the way? But what did the pastors say? Yeah, some of them say something. Things are so stupid. You didn't pray hard enough. Your son or daughter uh, deserved it. By the way, that's the Clint Eastwood movie, right? We all got it coming. We all deserve it. But it's still an ignorant, angry, vicious thing to say. No, what they say is, go find a pastor that can answer that question. Okay? And so that's where it usually happens. You must be able to explain this. The first thing I say to them when they call me, do you realize your son is not dead? Do you realize that? I can prove it to you. I can prove the physical body has died, but his being, his essence, his thoughts, his his memories, his personality, is immortal. Now what we need to talk about is where is his destiny? Where did he go? That's how you approach that. But you have to know it. You have to be able to prove it. That's why it's so important to you. Biblically based sound reasons for our beliefs. We should be able to do that. But we also should be able to discern the errors in the alternative systems. So let's add a little to that end while we're messing around. Since I had such an early start, we had to wait for people to come from the end of the football game because they intentionally missed the music anyway. But we know who they are. Can we blame? But the banjo was hot, wasn't the banjo hot? Yeah, okay. See, you had to come to hear the banjo. Anyway, the words "banjo is hot" in the same sentence is rarely uttered. That's just uh, that just doesn't happen. That's that old joke, right? I've only got five jokes. I repeat them all the time. What do, you tell, uh, what do you say to a banjo player in a suit and tie? What do you say? Would the defendant please rise? That's right. Okay. Okay. Thanks for laughing. Move to the front row. Now, let's add a little, as I said, to that end. Let's reexamine some common atheistic suppositions. So remember now that atheists are committed to a philosophy. Let me write a few of them on the board here. Really fast, it's reductive, reductive materialism. That's probably the most prominent aspect of what we hear today, Uh, reductive materialism. There's also monistic materialism, and I've said, I've talked about that all the time, the belief that we are purely physical, that at the end of our physical life uh, is the end of our existence. And then there's empirical realism. That, um, that you're going to run into all the time. So you have to know what these alternative systems are, these alternative philosophies. Can everybody see that? Reductive materialism and empirical realism as well as uh, monistic materialism. You see the material I- I involved in both of those. That means they're focusing on the physical, the material they are not focusing on, they don't care about, they don't think exist, the immaterial or the supernatural. And so they're committed to a philosophy that incorporates those three, and I just put the two on the board, so... Remember the third one yourselves. Slight differences between the terms, but all atheists accept all the aforementioned. They accept it all as truth. To boil it down, reductive materialism. Seems like a very difficult term, but it's not. Reductive, reduce materialism taking materialism and reducing it, taking material and reducing it. That promotes the belief that physical material or physical material reality is the only reality and that physical reality is reduced to subatomic particles. Therefore, human beings are just merely physical and those physical parts are little tiny particles. Electrons, atoms, quarks, if you will. Pick your particle. Reductive materialism says that you are tiny little parts. We reduce you to tiny little parts. And we looked at all the parts and there is no soul in them. So that's what you are. That's what everything is. It's material. Empirical realism is the premise that essentially says truth can only be achieved by our senses through scientific observation. You'll run into that all the time. You'll hear it in the lunchroom. I only believe what I can see, what I can feel, what I can hold in my hand. It's got to be physically part of me or I don't believe it. Empirical realists will often attack us traditional radical dualists with William Clifford's late 19th century argument. Clifford argued this. It is wrong, always, everywhere, and for anyone to believe anything based on insufficient evidence. In other words, what's he saying? If you don't have evidence of it, it's wrong. Clifford went on to conclude that we should believe as true only that which is proved. See? See what you have to be able to do? That's why you have to be able to prove the existence of your soul, your spirit. Because empirical realists conclude that we should believe as true only that which is proved, and we should reject as false that which is unproved. Imperial realism controls the academia today. So, if you're going to walk into an academic setting and you say, I'm a Christian, I believe I'm going to exist after my physical body, I believe I have a continued immortality that is supernatural, that is metaphysical, that is immaterial, they will say to you, the absence of evidence is evidence of absence. That's their famous quote. Let me repeat that. The uh, the absence of evidence is evidence of absence. So if you cannot produce any evidence, then you have nothing. So, if you walk in and say, I believe it because I believe it, That, by the way, is Pascal's wager in uh, philosophy, for those of you who like to know those kinds of things. Pascal's wager has merit, but essentially it ultimately becomes, I believe it because it's the best thing for me to do. I can't prove it. I just believe it because it's good. And it works. And, And it's fire insurance, just in case. Why not do it? Because if turns out to be true at least i avoid that final destiny of of uh, torment and again as i said it has merit but it will not work well for you in the arena of ideas see once they say the absence of evidence is evidence of absence they immediately leap to therefore we have no soul no spirit no immortality no existence after physical death because why because they say, you have no evidence of it. And what do I say? Oh, yeah, I do. I have evidence. See, after they say that, they say, well, you have no evidence of God. There is no God. There is no creator. There was no creation. There is no designer. Because there is no physical proof. Proof? You, you see the progression? you got to know why they progress this way and how. I'm often confronted with Clifford in one form or another, especially from returning college freshmen. Uh, That's who they go to college for the first time. They run into this uh, empirical reasoning and empirical materialism. And they come back and they think either two things. Either they're devastated by it. That's the Christian school kids. They go and they run into it and they come back with no face. They're absolutely wiped out. Is the Christian school doing a good job with those kids? No. They're failing them miserably. They're getting, getting slaughtered out there. Because the Christian kids stand up, and then they just get cut to pieces. So I either get those kids coming back to me, or I get the other. I get the, uh, the returning college freshmen that are anxious to attack me with it, because they think it is irreparable, that I can't deal with it. I have something that that older, big-boned fellow who eats most of the buffet... I have something that he can't solve. And in both cases, it's it's discouraging to me. It is. It's, in both cases. Either freshman that comes is discouraging. Because the premise is really quite elementary. It's very simple. It's not thought through well. It's been destroyed. It's something that's easy to refute. So either group of freshmen should have quickly discarded it. There should have been somebody in their sphere that just booted that thing across the room without any difficulty but those people are rare now so that just tells me that the church has lost its intellect its ability to think through simple things even much less well here's the church right here dumbing down the Bible as fast as it can in order to do what? make as much money as possible because the rule is always the same I can get money from stupid people that's easy I brought it up for you to ponder while I'm going to move on to Revelation 17. I want you to start out thinking that, yes, this is easy. I should be able to slaughter this argument. Okay? That's true. I want you to ask yourself, what's wrong with Clifford's assumption? Because that's the way you should always approach it. You have, you have something that attacks the immortality of the soul, or the deity of Christ, or the, uh, or the existence of God. The first thing you think is, not is it, oh, it's true, you never think that. What do you think? Why can't I figure out what's wrong with it? Because it's gotta be wrong. I know it's wrong. How is it wrong? So ask yourself, what is wrong with Clifford's assumption? Besides the obvious, I'll give you one obvious. See, they believe empirical realists say, I have to be able to see it, I have to be able to touch it, I got to be able to taste it, I got to, what's the other one, smell it, see, and I got to be able to hear it. Empirical realism requires the human senses. They will say to you that if my human senses can't find it, then it doesn't exist, and if it doesn't exist, it isn't true. See, that's a presupposition, isn't it? That presupposes something. The obvious presupposition is that human senses are adequate to find everything. And they're not. Yes, sir? Well, they'll they'll tell you that they have found evidence of evolution. Now, you'll dispute it. You'll say it isn't evidence. But they don't care. They're the ones who find it. They can hold what they believe is something that is quite ancient. We'll argue about permineralized, permineralized, I barely got it out, permineralization another day. We've done it before. But no, that never works. But just recognize that they say that the human senses, the humanity, humanity possesses all that is needed to observe everything, to prove everything. If humans can't touch it or hear it or taste it or smell it or see it, it doesn't exist. Really? Let me ask you something. This is what I always start with. Do you have any ideas? touch them? An idea. A thought. Put that thought on the end of something for me, so I can take a look at it. Put put your thought on a uh, little slide, so I can look at it under a microscope. Put your feeling. Put your consciousness. Put your memory. Do memories exist? Does your personality exist? Does your being exist? Do human senses, can you touch your being? It has been logically destroyed. The idea that existence depends on human ability and senses is silly. It's been logically destroyed. Uh, Probably the most famous is George Berkeley, the English philosopher. It's called Berkeley's Perception. By the way, it's a couple hundred years old. By the way, you know about Berkeley. Because some of you know where the college that's named after this man is. Yes. It's California, Berkeley. It is not, it is, Harvard's the same way, by the way. They name things after men who were, who were brilliant, godly men, and then they destroy them. It's just amazing how they do it. But Berkeley, George Berkeley's perception 200 years ago that has never been dealt with by the empirical realists. Essentially, Berkeley concluded philosophically the same thing the quantum physicists do today, that there is no physical reality. The opposite is true. Everything that you touch and feel and taste, and none of that's true. He has a famous thing where he has a guy kick a rock. Guy kicks the rock. He says, "Okay, is the rock there? Yeah, it hurt. No, it didn't. The rock is only there because you believe it's there. Your, your perception makes it there. There is no physical reality. That's where he went, logically. So he ends up, as I said, in the same place where the quantum physicists do. Because the quantum physicists say that everything is nothing. It's all 99% empty space. There is no physical reality. That it's all illusionary. And that is why it's important for Christians to know the science and the philosophy. Next week I'll get into Berkeley a little bit more and I'll add in a little quantum physics. But I want you to begin to think about the absence of evidence as evidence of absence. And deal with that intellectually and talk to your kids about it. They need to know it's coming for them. It's a bullet right between the eye. But the bullet is what? Not real. There you go. And that's why it's important to talk to people who are dying, because dying dying does something. It makes you everything but a reductive materialist and an empirical realist. It teaches you the truth about what is real and what is not. Okay, Revelation 17.8. Here we go. Actually, 17.7. I threw all that in because I had time. And because it's important to you. We'll do this over the next six months anyway. So here we are again, seventeen seven. And this is very important. Let me flip it over. This is so cool. Yeah. Hey, let me try something. I gotta try it. I've been thinking about it for months. <laughs> oh okay. I have to practice. I was afraid to throw the drum set into the congregation. Okay, There we go. There it is. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? This is the Apostle John. The Apostle John should not have marveled. Said this last week. This is the Apostle John, the one that the beloved of Christ, the one that sat as close to him as he could, that held on to him. And he is marveling over the beast and the scarlet woman or the great harlot or the great whore and the angel saying why did you you john why are you marveling at this you should have had this worked out this shouldn't stun you you shouldn't be amazed at this which means what you shouldn't either you can study john you can read john you have john You should be able to figure this out, too. You shouldn't be marveling. You shouldn't be looking at Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. You should not be marveling. The angel said to me, I love that part, because what do I do with it? I put myself there. Why did you marvel, Steve? dummy angel said to me why did you marvel I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her I almost get the sense that the angel didn't you know I shouldn't have to tell you should have this worked down already which has the seven heads and the ten horns the beast that you saw was now I got to do it I got to see Revelation 17 it's in the book uh no. Cardinals one, <laughs> And you're just in time. We're just starting the sermons. Perfect. Yeah. Nicely done. The angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not And will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel. So not you, not the Christians, but the ones left behind, the ones in the tribulation. They're going to marvel at this. But not you. You should know. You should have this figured out. You should be teaching your kids, talking to your neighbors. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel. Whose names are not written in the book of life. In other words, who should marvel at this? The unsaved, not the saved. From the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Now, when you see that repeated in the Bible, that's usually because the uh, author thinks, God thinks, the Holy Spirit thinks through the writer that you need to hear it at least twice, maybe three or four times. So pay attention to the, the beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend. That is important information. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. Again, he repeats it. Because he wants you to understand that particular aspect. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they will, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Okay? (coughs) Now, it's very common for Bible scholars propose what I just read, Revelation 17:7 7 through 14, is referring to the beast phase of the lion, bear, leopard, and beast. I'll leave it here for a second. Um, I'll put it over here. The lion, the bear, the leopard, and then the beast. Very many scholars, if not most, believe that the beast in Revelation 17.8 is the uh, final uh, Gentile empire in some form or another. And many will conclude that it is in fact the Roman Empire is what's being spoke here. So they say the beast of Revelation 17:8 is best understood as the final kingdom of the age of the empire of the age of the Gentiles. Sorry, that began in 586 BC with Babylonian. By the way, Babylonia taking possession of Israel. Let me say this and turning and bringing them into captivity in Babylon. Whenever you say Tower of Babel, start to correct yourself. Start saying Ta- Tower of Babylon. Same word. That'll help you, by the way. So that you see all the Babylon's. You go around and collect the Babylon's. So they say that this is the final Gentile empire. Here is the first empire, Babylon. Here is the second empire, Medo-Persia. Here is the third empire, Hellenistic or Greek, Alexander the Great. Here is the beast that is the Roman Empire. And we are still in the Roman Empire today. Just one form of it. It's still the Roman Empire. It's called the East West stage or the two division stage. And that, by the way, is true. We are still underneath, if you will, the framework, again using that word, of the Roman Empire. And that's how this is best understood. So the beast that you saw was, is referring to a kingdom, was, was and is not, that's again a kingdom or an empire, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit. So they're saying that this is about a kingdom. This is about the Roman Empire. So the B, the Roman Empire that you saw is no longer in existence at the time of John. And this 51 to 96 A.D. is what most will agree. That's the span in which John wrote the book of Revelation. So the beast, the Roman Empire that you saw was, was the Roman Empire gone 96 A.D.? No. Broke apart in the 300s. Didn't completely collapse in Constantinople until 1434. So, is it best understood the Roman Empire that you saw was and is not at the time of John? Is the Roman Empire? See, that I think is really trying to beat the fit. So, I obviously disagree. I don't think this is talking about the final Gentile empire, though it is true that the final Gentile empire is also called a beast. So that's true. But I don't think this is talking about the empire. The beast is two things. The beast is a kingdom. And I said last week, it's necessary to separate the beast that is the empire from the beast that is the person. The Antichrist, the Zechariah 11 evil shepherd. So I have a beast, that's true, I have a beast that is the final Gentile empire, but I also have a beast that is a person. And that is why I think Revelation 17, 7-9 is talking about a person, an individual. Remember, it's wisdom to know who this individual is. That is the 666, right? If I know who this individual is, I have great wisdom. I believe we can know who this is because John knew him. If I'm correct, that this is a person. I'll get into that in a minute. My, my, Well, let's just do it now. Let's ask the obvious question. John wrote this. So John saw the beast. The beast that you saw, John, John saw the beast. So the beast was alive. If it's a person, the beast was alive and John saw him. If the beast is a kingdom, the final empire, then then John saw the final empire. The beast was, which means the beast is not now when John is writing this. So that eliminates the final empire. That means it's a person. So I have a person that he saw, and that that person was, and now that person is not. Okay? Remember that Satan in Revelation 13.1 calls the beast out of the sea. So you have to say, if I'm calling the beast out of the sea, then I'm calling the final stage of the Roman Empire out of the sea. Is that possible? Because the sea means two things in Scripture. One, it means Gentiles. So the final empire is made up of Gentiles. I could make that case. Or the sea means judgment, such as the Noatic flood, such as going through the Red Sea. That's judgment. Noah's, uh, Noah's Ark. The sea is judgment. It's also Gentiles. That's true. So I'm calling the beast. If my position is correct, I'm calling an individual person out of the judgment of the abyss. So why, if I'm right, and of course, what? I shouldn't. Why? Why do I say if I'm right? What's wrong with me? When you finally come to conclude that I'm right, that's better. Okay, it's a process. I know. I, I, I expect no, no. I have patience for you, my little grasshoppers. Remember Revelation 12:3. Very similar, the beast is to Satan in in Revelation. I'm sorry, I got confused here. Start back over. Revelation 13:1. Satan calls the beast out of the sea. I think that's a person. I think he's calling him out of the abyss. I think he's calling him out of judgment where he has been. And I ask the question, how does this human being end up in a place of fallen angels? Because that's where fallen angels are, the bottomless pit, the abyss. And that's why I say, remember Satan in Revelation 12.3. I have a very similar uh, appearance between the two. The only difference is seven crowns and ten crowns. Satan has seven crowns. The Antichrist has ten crowns. Everything else is the same. They look the same. So the obvious question is, is, they have a physical resemblance. How did they get a physical resemblance? Is this Genesis 3.15? And I believe it is. I believe that this is the seed of the serpent. Genesis 3.15. Everything ultimately ends up about Genesis 3.15. So they have a relationship. And John knew this person. So, obvious question number one. Is it best understood that an empire will go to perdition? Okay, what is perdition? Let me drop this so you can all see. What is perdition? Perdition is the name of the lake of fire. Is it best understood that the Roman Empire that you saw was, and the Roman Empire is not, and the Roman Empire will, though ascend out of the bottomless pit and then the, uh, the abyss, and then the Roman Empire, the place of uh, fallen angels. does that make sense? And then the Roman Empire will go into the lake of fire? doesn't make sense to me. So I think that we're talking about a person now. One person is called the son of perdition. It's a, it's one of the of no one else's. Of no one else, it is said in the Bible. We've heard me do that quite often. The son, and not a son, but the the definite uh, the definitive article. The son of perdition is identified in Scripture. So the person that goes to perdition that is called the primary subject of perdition, the first one into perdition, if you will, is identified in Scripture, and that is the Antichrist. The Antichrist is revealed as the Son of Perdition, Second Thessalonians two, three. Someone else is called the Son of Perdition, and is called the Son of Perdition by God himself while he was physically here. Jesus Christ, physically here, looked at one person in all of humanity and called that person, John seventeen twelve the son of perdition. And that is Judas. Why would God call Judas the son of perdition, the son of the lake of fire? Huh? Obvious question number two would John Marvel at an at a gentile uh, kingdom would he marvel at the roman empire is going to do something cool would that would he just go wow i never thought of that of the roman empire Would he marvel at the roman empire i don't believe he would would he marvel the judas is the son of perdition, and he wrote it, by the way, John 1712. Would he marvel at who Judas is? I think he might. Now, to be fair, some theologians compromise, and they say Revelation 17:8 and Revelation 13:1 through 3, where Satan is calling the beast out of the sea, they say those are double references. Some say double fulfillments. That's the both of you. They say the beast means not just a person, but an empire, and switches back and forth. That's the double reference position. Here's where I interject a couple of things. Let me flip it over now. Because I can, not because I need to. I don't need to do this at all. But I just can't. We have what's called the Simeon prophecies. And you've heard me talk about that all the time. The Simeons. Okay, there's a collection of Simeons in the Bible, or if you wish, you'd call them the Simons. Let's just think quickly of Simon Peter. Simon is hearing. Let's think of the first Simeon that Joseph imprisoned. Uh, he held one of the twelve brothers, one, if you will, of the twelve tribes. He put them in prison uh, over the Benjamin issue. Uh, one of them, and Simeon means hearing. Okay, that's what it means. So, essentially, he took the hearing of the nation of Israel and he imprisoned it. Simon Peter is walking on water, right? And he is slipping into the water. And he screams out, save me. He's a classic picture of the nation of Israel yelling out to the Messiah to save him. Simeons are pictures. You put all the Simeons, all the Simons together, you come up with a picture of Israel, okay? Well, the most famous is the Simeon who is the prophet at the birth of Christ. He holds up the Christ child and he says, as it is true, I will not pass away until I see the Messiah. There is your doctrine of Israel. That just destroys replacement theology. Do you see that? Do you know what replacement theology is? Replacement theology says that there is no Israel. God has abandoned Israel. Israel will not return. He's destroyed it and care about it. And the Gentiles have taken over. All, all references to Israel now mean the church. That's called replacement theology. And it is, what's the word I want? What's that? Oh, horrible is very kind. I was thinking of something that was a little bit more aggressive. Well, it's, it's clearly unbiblical, it's also a, it is a challenge to the goodness of God. But you see, Simeon holds up the Christ child as a picture of Israel and says, I will not pass away until I see the Messiah. So that means what? Israel will never pass away. Never. Because they will see the Messiah. Judas and is John twelve four. We were looking for it the other day. I have to go look for it every now and then. John twelve four is described as the son of, and that's not true because your Bible will have son in italics, which means it's not in the text. Judas is called of Simon. So he is part of the Simeon prophecies, that which refers to Israel. That is why Christ, by the way, says to Simon Pe- Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And finally, Simon Peter says, you know all things. What is that? That's an omission that Jesus Christ is the I am God of creation. Israel finally says, Jesus Christ is God. And he says, OK, follow me. And that is a picture of Israel in the tribulation just before the millennium. Simeon, the same thing. Judas is of Simon. Simon is a reference to Israel. Judas is, of course, a Jew. Sorry, Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum. Clearly a Jew. He's part of the Simeon prophecies. But it doesn't say, as I said, the son of. It just says of. Obvious question: Who's his father? Who's he physically related to? Whose physical attributes does he share? Okay, so the beast, the singular. By the way, we got to do this next week. I'm just, I'm doing. Oh, great shape! Wow, have some soda. See, I really can do it. I can. I can actually end on time and write just what I can. Now that I have my dry race board that rotates and is the platinum model, how I'm finishing on time every week. It's a piece of cake. Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. See, that's where we're headed. Thank you for bringing that up. But that's next week. Um, but I want you to think about Judas does what? See, a bunch of things are happening. Oh, golly, let's just go and have fun a little bit. Let's hope I don't run out of time. I see that. I see that. I can do it. I just have to write really fast. Something very powerful was in John 12. Go to John 12 really fast. See, this is where Judas, the first recorded words of Judas are here. We've got to have the first recorded words of Judas. Because he says something here. He comes up and he wants to stop the anointing oil from being poured on Christ. Why does he want to stop the anointing oil? He didn't like that anointing oil. And he gets all of his other apostles, all of his other disciples to go along. He is by far. John records his words and John records his prominence. He is by far, and I would expect this, the most powerful of all the apostles. And he has the money. He is the most trusted one. He is the money box. Now, The money is for the poor. And here's this wonderful statement For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always, you do not have always. Now, that is clearly, without question, a reference to what prophecy in the Old Testament. Come on, you can do this. Zechariah 11. That is a Zechariah 11 prophecy. I would expect that. The poor of the flock are brought up by Christ when he is talking to Judas about the money. Now, does Judas need the money? No. He can make as much money as he wants. It isn't about the money. What is Judas doing with the money? Why does he want the money box? Christ knows, of course, who Judas is and who Judas will have inside of him. And Judas is called a thief. And you must know that everything that Judas has to say is a lie, is a trick, is a trap. So how is this a trap? Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? That is a lie and a trick. And Jesus Christ answers that back, Zechariah 11. And no one got it. Because this is the idle shepherd and the good shepherd of Zechariah 11. Judas is interested in money. Why? He doesn't want the money. And so Judas is stealing. Does Christ know he's stealing? Well, yeah, he's omniscient. So why is Judas doing this, knowing that Christ knows it? Does does Judas know that Christ is omniscient? It's a very interesting question. It's a very complicated thing. So anyway, the beast, the singular son of perdition, is what's going on in 178, not the fourth Gentile uh, empire. Does this explain why Judas, Matthew 27, threw the, the, the pieces of silver, the Zechariah 11 at the temple potter? Yes, it does. The was, the is not, will, will ascend, go to perdition. I submit that this is simple math, you see, because Judas is called perdition. The Son of Perdition. He, uh, the beast comes, will go to perdition. Okay, and the Antichrist is called the Son of Perdition. So I'm, I'm going to say it's math. Perdition equals perdition equals perdition in all three. Whoops. In all three verses that they're all the same. In other words, John seventeen twelve, where Christ called Judas perdition. That's equal to Second Thessalonians two three, where the Holy Spirit through Paul calls the Antichrist perdition, and that's equal to seventeen eight, where John calls, John calls, John points out that the Antichrist and Judas are both called the Son of Perdition. And I'm saying to you, that is mathematical proof that they are the same seems pretty clear to me that it's true, that if perdition equals perdition equals perdition, then Judas equals Antichrist equals the beast. And that, I think, you will eventually, before everyone jumps up and agrees with me, we got to keep going, though. We've got to go to Daniel 2. You see, Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 describe the times of the Gentiles, and they must be compared in order to properly comprise the prophecy that is the stages of the times of the Gentiles. So let's do that really, really fast. I lost my. Uh, oh, there it is. Okay. Remember, I started out by saying that you cannot understand Revelation 17 unless you understand Daniel 7, Daniel 2, and Revelation 13, because those are four parts of a whole. So you have to list them. I'm going to give you the Daniel 2 prophecy. Eh, Really fast. Let's just see if we got it. I'm going to put it on the board here. If we run over, that only hurts who? Only hurts the people who get the CDs. We don't. Okay, we like them. Daniel 2. Do you know what Daniel 2 is? Daniel 2 is Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and Daniel explains the dream to him. That's how the court of Daniel got started. That's how the Magi came from, they the descendants of the guy that Nebuchadnezzar was going to kill. But Daniel solves it for him. He saves all those guys, and all those guys what? Love Daniel. They're alive. And their children love Daniel, and Daniel taught them about how this was all going to go together. And so they show up when they see the Shekinah glory. Good for them. Okay, so Daniel 2 is about this image of Nebuchadnezzar and uh, I'm going to skip that but we'll go back to it next week I'm going to take you to Daniel 7 but that's what it is because the image of Nebuchadnezzar joins together with the vision of Of the four beasts of Daniel seven, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and the visions of of his head while on his bed, and then he wrote down the dream and telling the main facts. I always want to know what are the other facts. Daniel spoke, saying, "I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea." And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion head, eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man. And that man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear. Okay, so he's starting to talk about I got a lion and then I got a bear. And then you'll have a leopard and then you'll have a beast. And they are clearly empires. And they are the age. He is beginning to go through the age of the generation. Why would he want to know about the age of the Gentiles? Why does Daniel care so much about the age of the Gentiles? Because when the age of the Gentiles is over, Israel is restored and he's a Jew. And we are in the age of the Gentiles. So what's the obvious question for us? How far off are we? Well, here's how it works. The lion was the Babylonian Empire. So the lion has come and gone. Lion, gone. After the Babylonian Empire for Daniel came the Medo-Persian Empire. Cyrus. That was the bear. Then will come Alexander the Great and the Hellenistic. Okay? That's the leopard. Some people think Nazi Germany was the leopard because of the Panzer divisions and the tiger tanks and all of that. And then those those three are gone. And then we have the fourth. Now, remember in Revelation 17, Revelation 13, five have come, one is. One is yet to come. Again, talking about empires. So then I finally get to the, the beast, but I don't get the beast immediately. I get a prelude to the beast. You can call it the beast if you want. The final the final Gentile empire. And we are there. We are in the final Gentile empire. So now I'm going to get rid of these guys. Those are your four. I'm going to put the beast over. Let's put him here. So we're now in the beast empire. What some would call the Holy Roman Empire. Okay, the Holy Roman Empire started out with the Tarquins. And then it went to the counselors. And I'm spelling counselor right. Then it went to the plebeians. Okay, then it went to the Republicans. And then it went to the triumvirate. Before it became the Holy Roman Empire, okay, or the Unified Roman Empire, I had five phases of the Roman Empire. Five were, one is. Five have fallen. Five stages of the Roman Empire were gone when John wrote Revelation. Five had fallen, one is. The one that is, is the Roman Empire, the united stage of the Roman Empire. So then we got it. Now it's going to come from here and it's going to go over here and I have a united stage of the Roman Empire. That's one is. That's where John was. One is yet to come. Okay. and so I have I have five heads and then I have. What's called the sixth head and the sixth head. So here's the first head of Revelation 17, 13, second head, third head, fourth and fifth. Right. Now I'm in the sixth head. The sixth head. It divides up. I have 21 seconds. So I'll almost be done. The sixth head divides up. It's in a united stage. It's in the two division stage. Daniel makes that very clear. Next week, we'll, we'll all of this. You'll begin to see how all of this fits together. We currently are in right now. Nineteen. What is it? Okay, two thousand ten is in the two division stage of the Holy Roman Empire. What's called the East-West stage. Constantinople fell in fourteen fifty-three, and Rome fell in four seventy-six. And we were divided in uh, uh, 325 or so, uh, 364, sorry. It divided in 364. We are still in this because when the, when the, when the uh, barbarians, if you will, took Rome, they, Charlemagne took the Roman Empire up into France and it became the Holy Roman Empire of Charle- Charlemagne. In 1453, when uh, Constantinople fell to the Ottomans, Then uh, it moved up into Russia where it became what? Became the Tsars of Russia. Can you see that Tsar is the Russian word for Caesar? When the Franks were defeated by the Germans, it remained the Holy Roman Empire because the Germans called their leadership what? Kaisers. Still Caesar, Caesar. We are still in this two division stage. Right now we even talk about it this way East and West. We have the Eastern Bloc Nations, the Western Bloc Nations. That is the two-division stage of the Holy Roman Empire. We're we're still there. We have a one-world government that comes. Are we on our way to a one-world government? Daniel says you're going to have a one-world government, and then you're going to have a ten-world division. And then you're going to have what? What are you going to have after that? That's right, you're going to have the final head, the seventh head, and that will be the Antichrist has total control. He devours the entire world. That is what Daniel predicted in the 500s B.C. So far, he has got it absolutely perfectly right. We are waiting for three stages and one head. Next week, we'll finish all of this off, and you will become able to defend your immortality. Okay? There you go, guys. Rise and be dismissed. The last song is Who Am I? On page 98. 98.